From the Spec Network, this is Fragmented, an Android developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better Android developers. I'm Don Felker. And I'm Kaushik Gopal. Welcome to the show. This episode of Fragmented is brought to you by Rollbar. I was just talking to Kaushik earlier on this episode about how I absolutely love Rollbar. I use Rollbar uh, on my web applications as well as on a couple of projects for my, my Android apps as well. The thing is, it just works. And I really feel like I would not be in the position that I am today without the tools such as Rollbar. And that's coming from me. This is not actually part of a sponsored read. This isn't part of the document they want me to read to you. None of that. This is actually me telling you from personal experience, I love this tool. I've got it integrated with my Slack environment. Anytime errors pop up, they let me know, hey, this is the 10th time. This is the 100th time. Whatever, how many times this error has occurred. Here's the stack trace. Here's where it's at allows you to dive in deep. You can actually resolve these errors, kind of work and collaborate with your team members over these errors. Here's how you're going to go ahead and, you know, possibly fix some of these things. It allows you to query inside of, you know, Rollbar to kind of figure out what's happening inside of there. The cool thing is it really doesn't take much time to set up. It just takes a couple of minutes to integrate with your application or your web application. And that's pretty much it. From that point forward, I highly recommend that you actually sync it up to something like Slack or HipChat or whatever your internal tool is to get notified of these different errors. And then, of course, you need to fix them so you can have a consistent app experience for your users. But the cool thing is I'm able to know when my errors happen far before my users can ever email me. And this allows me to be 10 times more proactive, makes my customers a lot more happy when I'm able to fix the errors before they can even contact me. And when they do contact me about them, they say, hey, Don, there's this error that just happened on this part of the application. I could say, yep, we've already pushed out a fix for it. Should be to you any second now. Makes them super happy. So at the end of the day, I highly recommend you check out Rollbar. And to do that, you're going to go to rollbar.com slash fragmented, and you're going to go ahead and get hooked up. So anyway, go to rollbar.com slash fragmented. Check it out. Kaushik, you were not able to join me this time when I was at DroidCon NYC. I'm pretty bummed out about that. I'm pretty bummed out too. I missed a whole bunch of really amazing talks. At least uh, I've been seeing the YouTube playlist and there are some amazing talks that I really feel that I missed. But it looks like you made it to a couple of talks and there was one talk in particular that uh, you enjoyed that you brought up. Exactly, yeah. And so we decided to bring on the author of that talk, uh, onto the podcast here to talk about what I had seen there. And that was kind of a reactive workflow pattern. And that was presented by Ray Ryan. So without further ado, Ray, welcome to the show. Hi. So I'm an author now. Uh, author of a talk. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Excellent. Um, for those that are not familiar with you, Ray, um, if you give some background about who you are, maybe where you work, uh, how you got into Android and, and so forth, it would be fantastic so folks could get familiar with you. Sure. Um, I am uh, an engineer at Square. I've been there just over six years now. Um, and I got into Android development because when I got there, they needed either web dev or Android dev. And I never wanted to touch web dev again. Good choice. So <laughs> that left Android. And uh, I've been working steadily on our flagship app, which this month we're calling Point of Sale um, for that entire time, which is unusual at Square. Usually people move around more. Was that the uh, register app? Is it, was that the original name? That was the original. Well, actually, probably register wasn't the original name either, but it was register for a long time, and most of the code is still register. 
but uh, we, you may have noticed that we recently shipped an actual appliance called Square Register. And so I think we, uh, in advance of that, we moved to kind of disambiguate that term to leave it available for the very cool device, which I worked on. I was a uh, cross-team tech lead on that for a couple of years, actually. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. So is the register, uh, does it run Android per se, or is it, no, is it uh, something else where it's like native code or something? It's, um, it is Android, but it's kind of Android as an implementation detail. Um, so um, there's no, no app store or anything like that. Um, we've kind of maybe done an Amazon, but even uh, less so. We're, it's, it's meant to be first and foremost an appliance. And it's actually for the, for the target audience, that's a feature. You don't want people to be able to uh, install games on the side or, you know, mess with what's being installed there. Um, we've, We've taken over um, updating the OS and all that kind of a thing. So if you if you look hard enough, you might see a little bit of Android peeking through, but we've tried very hard to give it um, our own distinct skin. But on the, that said, um, the main app is the same one that we ship to the Play Store every two weeks, um, and we, we're trying to keep that same pace of updating on the thing. So um, it, it's meant to be very up-to-date uh, and uh, very secure, very full-featured. There's no... We, we didn't fork the app three years ago and say, uh, okay, we'll catch up every now and then. It's, <laughs> it's just as continuously maintained as anything else we do. Oh, that's wow. pretty cool. How do you ship it to the actual devices? Sorry, out of curiosity. <laughs> um, it's, it's the same um, you know, over-the-air update that you would get for uh, uh, an OS update on the stock Android device. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's not completely stock, but we tried to ride most of the rails that... Um, we're in place in AOSP already. Um, and that's, and that's the only update vector actually, which is interesting. Um, we actually, um, we bake the apps into the OS image and, oh. um, uh, the theory is that we're going to rely on the ability to download a, a Delta OS update. And I'm pretty sure they must've gotten that working before we shipped. Got it. Um, so there's a, whether the OS changes or the apps change or whatever else, there's, there's one set of pipes that takes that down. We'll download in the background. Um, and then, Overnight, if we have an update to apply, we'll reboot the device, and you wake up in the morning and you've got a nice fresh thing there that you probably didn't even notice that it changed. This is a really difficult problem. I worked with a company that uh, did hardware like this with a customized version of Android, and, and this is really difficult. So kudos to you and your team for shipping it and getting it out there. That's a tremendous feat. It's pretty exciting, i got to say. <laughs> so, Ray, I had a quick question. Uh, I happened to watch uh, the talk in post uh, and you mentioned in the stock that uh, the Square Register app, now the point of sale app, for nine months and approximately two years, if I'm correct, you there was the, this Hail Mary moment or something where you decided, hey, let's move to this new pattern or like this new architecture, so to speak. Uh, and it's been going pretty well, I hear. So we thought, hey, why not talk about this and you know maybe go into that can you tell us a little about uh, that aspect yeah, yeah. Kind of the background about how you decided that, that needed to happen i mean the talk was awesome so some of that same info would be fantastic sure um it hasn't it hasn't been that long the um god what, what started all this uh we have kind of a happy problem of having legacy code right you know if you if uh if you succeed then your app keeps getting bigger and more complicated and then it starts to become a lot less fun to maintain oh, yeah. um and we had um you know, both both the Android and iOS teams um, basically shipping the same app with the same feature set that's been growing steadily for uh, I don't know seven years, something like that. Um, so it sooner or later you can't help but you've made a mess. Um, <laughs> so there was there's a, a 
a particular um, engineering director who came in to us uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, Mike Schwartz, a really brilliant guy. He used to work at um, Xerox Park and, and that kind of a thing. Oh, nice. And uh, he kind of took it, you know, he, he saw a lot of frustrated developers. Um, he, he first started looking at this problem more from the iOS side because they were unhappier. Um, and there was this, this kind of notion going around that, gosh, the Android developers seem to have their act together. Maybe we should try to teach the iOS developers to work the way they, they do. But the closer that he started looking at the problem, he could see that the Android developers had their own special kind of unhappiness as well. And oh, no. <laughs> a lot of the stuff that looked like success on our side was actually, we we're starting to hit walls too. Um, so he basically recruited a, a, a couple core uh, Android people and iOS people, uh, talked us into um, trying to do something about this as a, as a first, you know, as a primary concern, which, you know, we were reluctant to do this because, um, you've been in, uh, doing software for a while. You've seen efforts like this, and they tend to go off into the weeds. And oh um, yeah, you, you know, it's, it's it's a scary thing to try to say. Yeah, I'm going to try to fix all this stuff. Um, but the words um, that usually people look for is like, oh, I'm going to rewrite the app. Right? That's basically that <laughs> right. strikes terror right. into the hearts of almost every program. Which, which pretty much means you're going to go off for six months or a year, and then just fail to deliver something. And the app <laughs> is still horrible when you're done. And yeah, you know, we've we've all been there, and we've and we've had previous versions of this. It's usually something on the order of, let's try to just take out the payment flow. For us, it's all about you know, the credit card payments and just isolate that into a nice clean thing. Yeah. <laughs> Even articulating what the nice thing is and where it starts and where it ends and you know why you're trying to do this. You, it's, it's difficult to get from uh, everything sucks and everything and let's make it better to or actually articulating why it sucks and how to make it better. And so Mike's genius really was to, first of all, to get each of us to say, sure, I'll give this a shot. And it all came down to, I'll do it if he'll do it. <laughs> and we all said yes at the same time. And then he um, he kept, he forced us to hold off on just jumping in and starting to fix the stuff that we knew had to be fixed and actually go through the efforts, talk to um, all of the teams and get their impression of what is wrong and um, try to articulate, you know, what are the various parts of this app and what are the actual, you know, what what is making it unpleasant? What is going to make it more pleasant? And that um, that was really uh, eye opening. It really gave us a different impression of what had to be fixed and in what order than uh, if we had just kind of jumped in and rolled up our sleeves and started hacking on things. Um, That's pretty so, fascinating. Uh, one follow up question I have is because mm-hmm. this is an effort that almost every company is going to try to make, right? Yeah. One of the working theories is like, oh, this is like an iterative approach, right? Like, oh, you should chip away at this like in small fashion, in a small fashion. But it sounds like the way you folks approached it was like, let's go back to the drawing board and actually start with our fundamentals, right? Uh, did you sense at least, I mean, it, it's wor- it looks like it's worked out pretty well for you now, but did you sense at that time that, hey, maybe we're trying to like change the whole world a little too much at this point? Uh, did you ever feel like it was, you know, uh, treading towards like the waterfall approach at that point. That I mean, there was that kind of fear that made us reluctant to sign up for the thing in the first place. And he spent a good six months kind of coaxing us and refining the vision and everything. Um, and and it was fear of that um, is what really shaped the approach that we took. You mentioned that the uh, the, uh, the two year time frame that I talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea there was that we would. We were patterning ourselves on a similar project that had happened um, when we realized that our, our services were all one massive monolithic um, web service, and 
Um, there was a team that was formed whose job was to destroy that web service and break it up into microservices. Um, and that actually worked. And in part, it worked because they had that particular job. They had a goal of taking the big thing and breaking it into smaller things. And so we try to set ourselves up so that um, we would have kind of a similar structure where our job was to take a given amount of time, two years is what got picked. And um, uh, our job was to break up the nasty hairball of code into something that we can actually work through. Um, the two-year time frame was useful because it was just long enough that we could imagine doing everything and just short enough that it was still terrifying and how could we get anything done. <laughs> um, so I forget the question, but uh, did it come close to answering it? That was good. That was good. Yeah, so you guys had this humongous application that's just it wasn't fun to maintain. It wasn't fun to just develop on. It was difficult for, I mean, the Android team had problems, your iOS team had problems. And now you've, you've got this chance to kind of, to, to sit down as a, as a crew and say, all right, well, how can we fix this in the right way? What, what problems on the Android side made this really difficult and, and made the, made you come to this decision? Like, all right, well, these things are all, you know, everything's kind of spaghetti. I think you even said in your talk, right? What, what was inside? I mean, from everything that everybody hears about square and the amazing team that you have there, is it everything's, you know, it's just fantastic there. Um, but that's usually not the case with, you know, that's maybe that's how it is on the outside for us, but for you to come to this conclusion, it must, something must've been, you've hit this kind of natural inflection point of like, all right, this is too much. What was that on the Android side? What made you guys think, all right, we need to, you know, you guys, girls, whatever, made you jump over that, uh, that you know, that, that new uh, direction that you're moving on? 12-minute build times. 12-minute 12, 12 clean build, probably actually longer than that in a lot of cases, and incremental builds up to like three minutes to five minutes. It's just insanely painful. And, oh, um, yeah. That is, yeah, that's harsh, yeah. Yeah, various people try to look at, you know, what can we do to fix this, and we can try to, oh, Basil is exciting and Buck is exciting and gosh, none of them are going to do us any good at all because all of our code is in one big massive module full of circular dependencies. Mm-hmm. You know, we found like we found some optimizations for Dagger that we were able to do and you know stuff like that. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> every bit of analysis we did had this one long pull, which was compiling the core module, the, the register <laughs> module. Yeah. Right. So, and at the same time that you know. Um, that was happening. Um, iOS was had their own flavor of that, and they have Swift on the horizon. Where um, you know, you look a few years ahead, and if you're not developing in Swift, you're not going to be able to hire anybody because they're not going to put up with it. Right. And so, you have both of these crises kind of happening at the same time, and looking to each other for solutions. And we realized we had a chance to try to fix both at once and try to find some consistent uh, see if, see if there was you know consistent patterns that would make everybody happy. Fascinating. So. I guess like the giant spaghetti ball, like, you know, sort of module was the kicker that sort of got things started on both sides, both iOS and Android. Like the, I mean, yeah, it, it is. And that was, that was the very consistent problem on both sides. No question. And this was even before uh, Android was like coming up with like the instant app thing and saying, Hey, Gradle is going to be way more efficient. If you like modularize your app, uh, did you have that realization at that point or was it like, hey, Gradle, the newest versions of Gradle is on the horizon and they say that our build times will dramatically improve if we start 
modularizing the app. This is even before Gradle started making those promises. Um, <clears throat> Buck, Buck was kind of the driver. Uh, there were got it. Go a, ahead, a, a, a few people on the team who learned about the OK Buck plugin mm-hmm. yeah. um, that I think uh, Uber's responsible for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, OK Buck is a is a disgusting idea, right? You've got your, your Gradle build is, <laughs> is disastrously slow, and so maybe the way to make that better is to add a plugin to your Gradle build to make it generate the config files for a buck build so that you can run the buck build instead. It's all run Gradle and buck, but it works. Um, it we, is clever. <laughs> it's pretty clever. You got, it, you it got, really, it's, it's the kind of clever that, that shouldn't work and actually does. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's, it's changed a lot of our lives. It really has. Yeah. Um, we, we still haven't managed to get to um, Android Gradle plugin 3.0 yet for various reasons. And um, that's when the promised speed ups come. So in the meantime, we were able to um, uh, bang on things enough to finally get um, OK Buck going, and that's that's bought us um, I don't know six months or a year now of of much improved uh, lifetime. If oh, we get wow. to 3.0 and we find that it's you know, if it's even like you know within 50, 70 percent of um, what Buck is doing for us and you know, keeping its promises, we'll, we'll probably walk away from that complexity and go back to a more mainstream build. But at the moment, you know, it's pretty intolerable without that. Um, but but even there, so we start playing around with Buck, and Buck has these you know these nice um, generates these nice build reports that you can look at. And there was always one massive long bar, which still came down to this isn't going to help you too much until you actually start chipping away at the at the monolith. Got it. Oh, so when you mentioned incremental builds, it was the Buck incremental builds, which if I remember is like two incremental builds, right? It is. It actually does. It's pretty good about that. And even those were two minutes. Um, it. An incremental build with Buck for us right now is still on the order of a minute or more if you're actually messing with the hairball, um, Got it. which is a strong motivation <laughs> to get people to break up the <laughs> hairball. Right? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's coughing up. Yeah, it's funny yeah. it works that way, right? It's like, oh, I don't want to touch that, so maybe I should just like you know create mm-hmm. a different yeah. module. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> and what's been what's the, our biggest success in the last? So I keep talking about the two-year time frame and everything. So we're about almost one year into that two-year window that we gave ourselves, and one mm-hmm. of the the most important things that we've accomplished there is we actually have an idea of, of how to refactor out of out of the mess, you know, just a, right. have a few rules and some sample refactorings. And so um, we're, we've gone beyond the, gosh, I really feel like I should be trying to separate these things into, I know how to separate these things. I know how to build a mm-hmm. new feature from, from the bottom AO layer up to the individual bits of UI. I can build all of that off on the side and um, just making it possible to do that be uh, as as a standard practice took a lot of effort and it's paying off nicely interesting can what? you talk about how you approached uh, modularizing that part of the app like for example uh, many of us have the same concern like even the app that i work on like for for the most part uh, it is like a giant single module right like we've been good about like getting our build times down through other means but if you had to start off because what fascinates me more is that the fact that it was a single giant module and now we have started to break it apart into like different modules, right? Mm-hmm. This can be really hard because what if you had like your core model objects in the main module, right? And you want to start accessing them outside. So uh, can you talk a little about how you approach that problem specifically? Yeah. Um, one thing I'll do is is plug somebody else's talk. Um, we just got out of DroidCon SF um, last week or the week before. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Pierre... I, whose last name I realize I can't. Oh, pronounce. PY. Yeah, PY, yeah. I don't even attempt his real name. <laughs> yeah, PY and Ella just gave a talk uh, about how to extract your, how to work your way out of spaghetti. And uh, in particular, they, they showed some um, 
uh, class loading analysis techniques that they've come up with. Um, but basically, we, um, we and, and mostly they actually put a lot of effort into trying to learn how to um, uh, visualize, you know, use, use the dependency analysis tools in uh, IntelliJ Pro and use this class loading trick that they came up with for their work mm-hmm. and just try to try to identify um, clumps of code that have the fewest tendrils actually connecting them um, and just start to grab targets of opportunity, you know, less about what's an interesting thing to extract and more what's a possible thing to extract and just start kind of teasing things apart. Um, we, we, we've come up with, um, we have a kind of like three layer hierarchy now. Um, so, um, we have a set of modules that we refer to as common and those are the things that either don't depend upon anything else or they can depend upon other common modules, but, um, you know, no, there has to be a DAG. There's no circular dependencies between these things. And those are going to tend to be, um, either totally generic widgets, you know, widgets that don't know anything about any of our business objects or anything like that. They're just, you know, refinements of some Android widgets. Um, or there'll be, you know, honest to God model objects or maybe mm-hmm. retrofit services, just kind of really fundamental things. Um, and then there's the hairball module, the register module. That's allowed <laughs> to depend upon common modules. And then um, we chose the term feature kind of out of the air. The feature modules are allowed to depend upon the hairball they're allowed to depend upon common modules. Um, they can't depend upon each other, and there's there's no back pointers. Uh, register can't depend upon features. Uh, common can't depend upon features. And then at that at that upper feature level are our actual um, app targets. So there's like the the Play Store POS app build, and there's the um, the Square Register appliance build that's almost the same app but configured slightly differently. Um, so those things get to depend upon the hairball and the features and everything else. Um, and then the, the, one of the most important tricks we found was as a way to break up circular dependencies, um, will introduce, if I'm, if I'm pulling the, uh, the, the foo package out of the hairball and trying to turn that into something, um, that, uh, uh, we could, we could build on. In the common layer, we'll extract the foo API, just the you know the interfaces that um, uh, will be implemented by concrete classes, and then we'll have the feature, which is the real foo implementation, and then we'll use our dagger config so that stuff that's in the hairball can try to inject the the foo interface from the foo API module in common. Um, the we'll have our actual component definitions up defined at the app level um, that will provide modules that bind the, the foo, the, the, real, the real foo from feature land to serve as the interface that registers allowed to depend upon. It's difficult to get this across audio, yeah. through audio, but uh, <laughs> it is, yes. You're doing with, well, a white, with a whiteboard, uh, it can start to make some conventions. And so it's it, one of, one of the, um, the lessons that we've learned is that, um, so, like, so part of what we're trying to do with this whole, pattern that we haven't even talked about yet is uh, we've got a kind of a, a, we think a cleaner notion of how to actually define APIs, but all of the code exists already. Um, And to stay sane, uh, one of our tenants lately has been divide first and conquer later, meaning um, when you're actually pulling stuff out out of the glop and into a tiny little module that will actually build fast, you try to change the API as little as you possibly can. Um, so maybe you have to introduce one of these these API um, packages just to snip some circular dependencies and so on. 
but you don't try to make it the platonic ideal of what that API should be. Uh, you're just trying to keep this as you know mechanical refactoring as possible to get this code out into an isolated place where now you can actually iterate it on it at a decent amount of speed, and then you can start thinking about refining the, refactoring the API into something that you actually want to live with. Um, so that helps to keep it a really incremental thing. You um, go, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. <clears throat> I was just going to say that. Um, so everything that I've described um, is makes it pretty easy to just do like pure code refactorings, where you know if I've got some service or something, some some Java model object, and I'm going to um, subscribe to property. You know, anything that's not UI related, it's kind of obvious what to do with it from there. And then what's always been difficult for us, and I've, I've never seen um, a solution for this that I've been very happy with is how do you actually divide up the UI portion of this stuff? Like, how, how can I set it up so that I can uh, build these apps in a kind of a la carte style where, you know, okay, I'd like to have a payment flow and, oh, I would like to have um, uh, inventory and whatever else, but maybe other versions of the app don't want all of that stuff. Or maybe I'd like to be able to work on just the inventory features in isolation in a sandbox so that I don't have to build the entire app while I'm working on those. Like, how can you do that without at the same time creating some kind of a, a you know, IntelliJ or OSGA like plugin mechanism where each of these individual features are so completely siloed from the others that one design says, now when I click this button in the 15th step of the payment flow, I want to jump straight into the fifth step of the onboarding flow so that they can activate their bank account if they haven't done so yet, that kind of a thing. Um, well, how did you manage that? Yeah, you, <laughs> that's, yeah, you talked about this in your talk that was fantastic, and the, and the slides you had really showed, like, hey, if sometimes I'm in this presenter, I need to hop over five other layers and need to know about these other five screens. So it seems like you had some type of huge navigation logic sprawling issue all over the place, and right. this you guys solved that somehow. We think so. <laughs> We're still finding out. Um so that 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 kind of concern is where our flow library came from, um, mm-hmm. and flow is kind of you know it, it's the reason that um, our app was successful enough that we could get it this big uh, and and have this problem of gosh it takes a long time to build now. But so let me talk a bit about the, the good parts of that. Um, flow, what, is, flow what is flow real quick? So yeah, people yeah. don't sure. know what flow is. That's that's fair. Um, uh, flow is what we use. Uh, to manage our backstack, basically. Um, it's uh, a library that we've open sourced that we've never quite seemed to get around to getting to 1.0. Who, um, who's, Some beta. It, it, it's, <laughs> its, whole, its whole job is to um, keep, keep a backstack of uh, key objects, these little, these little pojos that define particular locations in your app, kind of like URLs for your app um, is the way to think about it. Um, so you say flow, go to... Uh, a key that's maybe um, the, the the cart screen or the checkout screen or something like that, and then uh, Flow will announce to uh, to your your dispatcher object that's listening to it. Hey, you told me that this is what should be on the screen right now. I don't know what that means, but let me know when it's there. And then if I've been told to go someplace else in the meantime, I'll tell you about that too. So there's, does it do like a fragment replace thing, or or is this to get away from fragments? Or this is or to get what? away from fragments. Um, we're we're notorious for not liking fragments. There's a, <laughs> a blog post of PYs that you, you'll find if you look just if you just look for square fragment. This will be the first. Oh yeah, time. oh yeah. Um, <laughs> we 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 bought into fragments hard when they first came out because we needed some kind of modularization story, and um, and that was a good exercise because it did force us to divide things up. Um, but then we also found that, especially in the early days, fragments were just kind of non-deterministic. It was really difficult 
to um, be in, you know, have a clear picture into what is the actual state of the backstack right now and, you know, what's it going to be. And um, you're, there's also the, the extra layers of, of indirection that it added where um, a fragment is in charge of building your view and deciding what animations are going to happen. And we, we kept running into um, bugs that we couldn't fix because of various race conditions that we could never make deterministic and animation effects that we simply couldn't do because of the order in which uh, the fragment manager insisted on applying things. And I'm sure a lot of this is better now, but at the end of the day, uh, we became pretty convinced that fragments were um, not particularly solving problems that we had and introducing a whole bunch of problems of their own. So, so our basic model is um, the Android view classes, the view hierarchy. That works great. <clears throat> and that's probably as much lifecycle as anybody actually needs, um, where the view lifecycle is I'm attached to a window, I'm not attached to a window, and a little bit of persistence on the side, and you know, and then 2D graphics and event handling, and you know, what, uh, what else do you really need? So... Um, so the 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 way a flow app works is um, we tell flow I want to be showing the the blah and it doesn't know what a blah is it just lets us know that this is what you told me you want to show right now and there's three other things that you decided to show before that and do with that information what you will and then we can uh, annotate and uh, decorate the hell out of those value objects to associate them with particular layouts that should be inflated or animation effects that should happen as we transition back and forth between them. Um, uh, and so that's, that's pretty much like the, 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 the beauty and then the, the, um, and the, the flaw of our apps. It's anywhere you go into our code base, it's very consistent about how individual screens or sets of screens are implemented. There's there's always a flow key that you know, names the screen, um, and that's associated with a particular layout that'll be inflated. Um, we have a style of presenter that we associate with these things. So, and that that was kind of I think the the success that the iOS team envied. Um, we had a we had a very consistent structure and a very consistent style, so we could do stuff like. Um, there's one obvious point in the app that every bit of navigation that we ever do goes through. And so we can instrument it and uh, give ourselves reports of every screen that gets shown and what screens link to other screens and that kind of thing. There's a lot of, a lot of that kind of uh, consistency that was, was good. But um, the failure of this is this is that the navigation I'm on screen a and um, I hit a button and that means that now I'm supposed to go to screen B. Well, the way that we do that is um, the presenter for screen A uh, gets the flow instances. It says, flow, go to screen B. By providing a key state or something. So like the blah key Providing state. the key object. Yeah, there's, a, there's an actual, you know, there's an actual class called screen B and it has a static field called instance and the, the call is flow.setScreenB.instance. Got Which it. means that screen A has a direct relationship to screen B which in turn has a direct relationship to the presenter and the layout that it's going to inflate. And then it knows directly about screens E, F, and G that it might be navigating to. Oh, so everything is we, kind of just coupled all uh, over. Huh? Exactly. And that's where the spaghetti starts to get tied up. Um, it, 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 it's, it's so easy to whip up a presenter and have that presenter say, and now go here and now go here and now go here, that all of our code was written that way. And um, that means that all of those screens directly wind up to actually depending upon the next screens. And um, it's much easy. It's, it's really easy to write another presenter 
And it requires actual discipline to think that maybe all of the huge amount of business logic in this presenter should be in some non-UI model object. And maybe somebody should be actually orchestrating the dance between these 25 related screens rather than having pointers directly from each to the other. So you, you brought up something that would really help solidify this in the talk for me. And that was when you started talking about, this is still in regards to the navigation problem or it just turns into spaghetti in the payment app, in the, I guess it would be the POS app now that you have the, you may have it where you go through a, a payment flow and you, you get to the signature screen, but then you say, well, all right, do we need a receipt or do we need to add right. a tip? Like, okay, yes, we're at a restaurant. We want to add a tip. Okay. But that's for a restaurant. Now, what if this other customer is a plumber? Well, we don't want to add the tip screen there. Okay, great. So now that navigation is going to have to be this or if, or switch statement or whatever's have to be added in there. Then you can further, you know, make that more difficult of, all right, well, do we even need a signature? Is it below a certain threshold where we don't have to have the signature based upon laws and regulations? Right. And then you just, I mean, and these are just like two or three different things and you get this Cartesian product of like all these different types of ways you can go and I can see how it just turns into this big mess. Yeah. So when it gets to, the, when it got to that point and how did you and your team go about solving this? I mean, you have this, you, this kind of, I don't know if you'd call it a sprint or whatever, like this huge get together of, of everyone and trying to figure out here's the problems that we have, uh, how are we going to solve these? Now that you guys have had this and you've been working on this a while, how did you start solving these problems so it didn't make so much of this huge hairball that you had before? Well, we haven't yet, to be clear. Um, oh, okay. So this is, this is uh, we, 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 we think we're on the cusp of doing it. Uh, oh, okay. All right. For the first time in a long time, we feel like it's actually going to happen versus uh, God life sucks. So that's, that's helpful. <laughs> So we will stay tuned. The, yeah, the way we've the way we've um, tiptoed up to it is, uh, you, know, you know, first is the whole, you know, clearly this is a problem. Um, we didn't we didn't have like a big meeting of everybody involved because meetings like that never end. Instead, we had this this this, this small team. Um, we're called the Futures Team. I don't know why exactly. Um, and uh, uh, we 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 surveyed everybody. We talked to all of the individual teams. We noticed, you know consistent themes coming out of you know it's, it's spaghetti and i can't i can't uh, tease the spaghetti apart and then we just kind of riffed on a whiteboard for a few days of you know how might this work um like the, the first the first useful exercise was well what are all the things what if we if we mm -hmm. tease this all apart into individual like building blocks um what would they be and that gives us this big list of stuff and then there's is the this similar of, to the utopian core principles that you talk about yes this is exactly how we got to that. Um, oh, perfect. So, okay. you know, what are those? Yeah, do you remember? Yeah. Um, the way we put it was that we uh, we went to the future and we came back with a book. Um, <laughs> nice. We, we kind of tried to look two years down the road of how do we wish everything would work, um, and then try to and and the exercise there was let's let's write the manual or at least the table of contents of the manual that describes the architecture that we wish that we had. From my side, I came in with the whole flow navigation, like central dispatch stuff that worked really well. But what didn't work really well was the direct references to everything. Um, and, and in particular, um, having bits of it that you can use again. So um, if I'm going to add a customer to something, there's like five different places where I want to add a customer or write an address. And in this, in this world of absolute addresses, how do I reuse bits of that and know how to handle things differently at the end? Um, and uh, Okay, so on the Android side, we've got everything pointing at everything else. On the iOS side, they actually still had a big, massive switch statement at the heart of their payment flow. Um, so they had like one thing centralized of here's the events that can come in, here's, and there's a notion of what screen we're on and what screen we should go to. And 
for everything else that was frustrating for them, that worked really well. And so right, right. pretty much we, we, we wanted to figure out a way that we could kind of marry those two visions. And so um, what came out of that was uh, this workflow pattern uh, that I talked about where um, you want to kind of take that switch statement, state machine type of approach and um, see if you can't come up with some kind of an interface, uh, a way to express those that will, but that, that you can still stack them on each other. Um, and keep in mind this, this, this need for reusability. So, um, uh, the, the big change from the way we do, both of us have been building apps is, um, to introduce this notion of a workflow object that starts with a particular input and then ends with a particular result. Um, and along the way is doing the state machine switch treatment type thing of telling somebody on the side who's interested, here's the screen that I wish you were showing right now. Where screen is again that kind of flow key pojo just value object that describes what it is you wish the user was being asked and what are the possible events that could come back from the user, and then some other layer can do the work of associating that with a layout to inflate or a dialogue to pop or something else. But the core machinery doesn't care about that. I, I just had a quick follow up question to that because uh, you mentioned this, and we'll try to add a link to the show notes to an image because. Uh, that makes it a, I mean, it really makes sense, uh, at least like, you know, the way you mentioned the input and the output workflow thing. Uh, one follow-up question I had, though, is for these workflow objects, you said that there's a result and anyone mm -hmm. who's interested in listening to these changes can basically see these changes. Now, uh, from what I gathered from your talk, uh, say like the activity screen or a view would be one of these things that is interested in the changes that's happening as this workflow executes, right? Nope. Oh, if, would it be a result then? Uh, would that be the result, I guess? Um, the, the activity or the view, um, they don't get to know about any of this. Um, oh, the, interesting. Mm. So we, we, we've, uh, we, we came up with kind of like uh, two layers that we wanted to work on. Um, first is like all of the business logic and everything. And that's in my talk, I talked about um, these are the bricks, kind of microservices for your app. This is you know the, your basic model objects, um, the, the the cart, the order that we're building, the, um, the the transaction that's going to take a payment for that cart. Pure logic, no UI concerns at all. Mm -hmm. And then a layer above that is where the workflows come in, and their job is to um, uh, inject the model objects that are relevant to the UI that they're trying to model. Um, monitor those model objects for changes, maybe push state changes into them in response to UI events. And all of that gets mapped into um, something that we can render on the screen. Um, so basically a workflow does the job that we normally associate with a presenter with uh, model objects on one side and um, user uh, views rendered to show to the user on the other side and receiving events coming in to push back into the model. Um, so uh, the question you asked was who is actually listening to this result and who is monitoring the workflow to you know, push stuff in front of the user. Um, the theory is that if you're building an app like this from, from top to bottom as a collection of workflows, it's another workflow is what's listening to the result so that it can decide what other workflow to start off um, when that result comes in. So like the top level of the app is the, um, the app-specific shell workflow, um, root workflow, whatever you want to call it, that's responsible for choosing which sub-workflow to be in. Uh, so if, you know, if a workflow is a is a facade around a state machine, a uh, composite workflow has smaller, more focused workflows as the individual states that it moves in and out of. So mm, okay. 
I'm going to start my app up, and the first thing I'm going to do is uh, is I'll, my master workflow is going to realize I'm not even authenticated right now, which means I need to kick off an authentication workflow. Okay. And so at the top level, the state that I'm in is I need to authenticate, and I'm delegating that to an instance of auth workflow, which will start off with no input of particular consequence. There's nothing to say to it. But so when that it's workflow done, handles everything that it's supposed to do with the authentication stuff, right? Exactly. It's got okay. no, no input for me. Um, and, it, and when it's done, it'll give me an authentication token, maybe. And that's um, the result? Is that the result? That's the result. Okay. Exactly. Um, or if um, uh, I've gotten past authentication and I'm now at the cart building scheme and a charge button has been hit, um, some, work, some workflow somewhere maybe ends saying, um, now the user is done building the cart and here's the result is the cart or the cart plus... Um, the particular charge button that they hit or a card swiper or something like that. And some higher level workflow is monitoring for that result. That child's that child workflow is done, which means I'm exiting this particular state. The result that I've emitted is maybe the event that I consider for what I should go into next. I can see that um, I've got a cart, uh, you know, some kind of description of the order. I've got um, the fact that they want to play with a credit card. And so I can instantiate a take a credit card payment workflow and tell it to start. Its input will be that um, that order object, you know, all of the items and taxes and the amount that we want to get charged. And what it's done, it'll give me some kind of an authorization code. Um, yes, the credit card was charged, and here's the result. And go find somebody else to take care of that for you now. Um, so you 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 asked a bit ago about these core principles that I completely failed to answer for you. Um, what, one of the one of the core principles before we even get down to like uh, model objects and workflows is immutability, um, which um, it's it's always a surprise to me that you actually have to uh, say this to people, but it's it's still not something that you can take as a given. Um, the basic notion is that um, I guess it's two intimately related fundamental concerns. Um, a any any data that goes across an API boundary is immutable. You know, it's like a struct. Uh, a lot of final fields in Java, and um, no getter methods. Everything has got to be reactive. Um, push, don't pull is kind of the guiding principle there. So if I've got a model object, um, I can have the moral equivalent of setter methods on it where I'm going to push in information that I wish would mutate this thing, um, but I've got no getter methods. I can never say, what is your name? Instead, I can subscribe uh, to a property, uh, probably just one thing that's going to give me um, a struct that, uh, like a, a snapshot of your, uh, an immutable snapshot of the object's current state that will um, fire asynchronously every now and then when the object is actually ready to tell me what its uh, per- current state is or that the state has changed or something like that. So basically, um, a bunch of setter methods with void returns and um, a few, ideally one. Uh, um, observable property of a snapshot of the state of this thing, um, and so you, you want the you want these values that are coming out of your observable properties to be immutable because you don't want them changing out from under you. Um, it's uh, you 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 don't want to just be relying upon uh, developer discipline not to accidentally clobber the canonical copy of the user's name or something like that while other people haven't told it. Um, if um, I can safely count on the fact that I've been given my own little picture of how the state of the world was um, when it last changed, and I'm not going to accidentally stomp on it or clobber it, um, there's a lot fewer mistakes that I can make. 
if I need to work in other threads, um, I've got all of the hard problems go away because nothing is going to, you know, I don't have to worry about when something is actually going to change because it's never going to change. It's immutable. Um, and, and like that. So, and then the, the, the whole, uh, push to pull thing is important because you, you can never get information on demand. Um, this is like been, it's especially obvious now that we've had an entire generation of client server stuff with, with the web and mobile apps and everything. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the odds are that you're talking to some service on some uh, server somewhere in some other country or some other state. And sooner or later, it'll be able to tell you what the state of things are. But in the meantime, I've got a UI to render. So I have to assume things are asynchronous. Or even if I am working totally locally, I'm uh, pulling stuff out of the file system. And I can't block my UI thread on a file operation. It's it's going to hang things up. It's, it's going to be bad. So everything is asynchronous. Nothing is ready yet. And so if um, you just fundamentally make it impossible to express your APIs in any other way, but hold on, I'll get back to you when I have that, um, a lot of problems just never happen anymore. Are you using Rx for that, or is it something custom that you've built internally? And this is to the in React, in, excuse me, yeah. in, um, in regards to the reactive push-don't-pull strategy, if I want to be notified when an event happens, or if something has been changed, how are you wiring that up? We are using the hell out of um, RX. Um, <laughs> it's it's temp- it, our, RX is confusing, and there's a steep learning curve and everything. But it's because the problem is hard at the end of the day. Um, mm-hmm. But there's right. you know there's a growing community of people who use it and use it effectively um, in mobile and on server. Um, it's got it's ridiculously consistent across various languages and implementations. So there's there's a lot of support there and um, there's when, when, once you kind of get a, a few kind of fundamental habits in mind that uh, it works well. But that said, we have emphasized that um, to each other, to, um, to ourselves, that reactive is a pattern. It's not a library um, mm-hmm. right. yep. on the iOS side where we're still more objective C than not. Um, there really isn't a decent reactive library. Um, and we still haven't really, we haven't tried to write our own, um, you know, little stub library to give you all of the bells and whistles of uh, of RX because it, it would be crazy. But you can still just at the end of the day keep things asynchronous. Um, you know, it's, it's it, you can it, it's not hard to honor the um, the, the the push don't pull pattern. Whether you do it mm-hmm. with callbacks or you've got some right. uh, minimalistic observable thing that you can you know have subscriptions to, even if you don't have the the pipelining and composition and everything that makes RX indispensable. You can still not uh, shoot yourself in the foot by trying to make things um, uh, synchronous that can never be. You basically should never have like a get user object. You're going to always subscribe to an observable of a user and then based on that, see any changes, right? Yeah. And then the objection will be that, uh, well, but what if I know it's there? Why can't I just go ahead and and get it right now? Because the instant that you do that, something else is going to depend upon it that you're going to depend upon that thing, but then three other things that aren't ready immediately um, the, the problem just spreads. And if it is there right away, that's fine. Your callback or your subscription method will fire immediately. And if you don't work this way, you wind up, every bit of code you wind up writing is, uh, okay, first I'm going to render the screen with the information that I have right now. And I'm going to have a totally separate path to get myself notified when that thing changes and how things are going to have to update. But if you um, write in this reactive style right from the get-go if you've got a you know single path which is um 
I'm subscribing to my, my, my source and eventually it will let me know that it's time to paint and then I'll paint and maybe it'll tell mm-hmm. me again and then I'll repaint. I've got one code path um, and yeah. a, a whole, whole host of problems just don't happen again. And of course, this is all easy to say and it's nice if you build that way for first <laughs> principles, but we didn't and nobody else did. And so, um, and that of- is like a large problem to, uh, I had a very similar problem, right? So we started using the room database and obviously room is very aggressive about not allowing you to, uh, pull things on the main thread, right? So you can't execute a database. Well, you can, but I mean, different story, but, uh, so the natural way to do that is, you know, uh, expose like an observable of a user. The problem is, if you've built your code base with this assumption that things are just readily available, it makes mm-hmm. it pretty tricky to go back and start changing everything. Because essentially, like you said, there are so many dependencies that are now just clobbered together that moving that to a reactive uh, sort of uh, mindset is not a one-line change. It does require, like that refactor is going to hurt, but it probably is yep. a worthy one, right? Yeah, and that's 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 where a lot of the time this this magical two year effort that I talk about comes in. Um, right, so, right. so that 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 um, that pattern of the the reactive model object, the brick, the Lego, whatever term we're using for it, um, that's where that came from. In part, was that it was something that um, it's not hard to refactor to that um, from legacy code. So you can you can give yourself a nice reactive boundary around code that you wish you had written in that style. Um, underneath the, that hood, it's probably still the same old nasty, accidentally imperative code that it was before. But at least you can put a you know a, a clean wrapper around it. And so, um, what we've been putting a lot of effort into over the last few months and over the probably the next year is identifying the kind of fundamental concerns that would be at the beginning of any reactive pipeline, and you know pulling those from the hairball, and then. Um, building a new non-deprecated API around them that is purely reactive um, for fundamental stuff like, um, you know, is the user logged in? And um, what is, you know, uh, what does the payment look like? Um, we've, uh, we, we don't use Room because it didn't exist soon enough, but right. uh, mm-hmm. it, it looks very promising. But this kind of thing is why SQL Bright and SQL Delight, our, our um, libraries were written, was to be able to be reactive right at the base at the, at the, uh, the database level. Right. Um, so you don't have to deal with the having to necessarily transform that, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, we started, um, we, we've just recently adopted Rx preferences um, to uh, wrap all of our, our shared preferences stuff. So the hope is that we get, you know, we get this, you know, the authentication piece and a couple of other fundamental building blocks and the various preferences stuff that we use for a lot of our persistence. We've got, we already have the databases finally getting pretty reactive. And that's, if that's your bottom layer, um, Building up on top of that to add a little more reactive or re- rework to be more reactive is a lot more uh, feasible than if you're trying to start like somewhere in the middle of the app, say. At the end of the day, it's it's just going to be a lot of effort, um, and you've got to give each other permission to like, you know, I, I could probably hack this thing together in two weeks and get it out the door and make it <laughs> worse, or if you give me a month... Um, I can do it in a lot more clean way and the next three things will be that much faster to go. And um, you know, we, we got to the point where management and product and individual engineers all saw that things were getting slower and harder and slower and harder. And, you know, it's time to make some, make some investments. I had a quick question, Ray. If you had, if you want to point folks to some resources, uh, we'll add a link to your talk. Obviously, that's one of like the best places. What are some other resources you can point our listeners to that you think they'll benefit from? 
Um, one thing that we found only recently, actually, is I keep describing the workflows as state machines. And uh, one of the things I go into in the talk is um, we actually implemented them as honest-to-God state machines with you know um, a state enum and an event enum and transition rules and everything. Um, and we whipped up our own little library for that kind of thing. But um, there's something much better. Uh, there's a guy, um, Andy Matushek. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he posted Brilliant. a gist mm-hmm. on um, how to how to do just pure CS101 finite state machines in Swift um, with just you know just uh, using the library's features. Um, sorry, the language's features in, in a pretty much you know a, a pattern for uh, writing these things, and it's it's so basic that there's really no point in making a library for it. Um, and that same pattern that he described would map beautifully to Kotlin and Kotlin sealed classes in particular. Um, so it's, it's very unlikely that we'll bother to open source our little F, uh, finite state machine library because it's, it's teeny tiny. Um, and in Kotlin, it's pointless. Um, you can, you can whip these things off. Sealed really classes quickly. basically are almost, you're almost sealed done. classes. Sealed yeah. classes are, are tremendous. They solve so many problems. Um, so the, the, the nice thing about a sealed class is that, Okay, so uh, you, you think of a state machine or something, your event handling in general, and you think of an enum. Um, you know, like the, the, the to describe, like I have uh, this was clicked and that was clicked and the other thing was clicked event, and that's all very nice. But as soon as you actually want to carry some data along with that enum, like um, you know, the the login button was clicked, and here's the email that they entered, and here's the password that they entered. The enums totally let you down. Um, and Java, Java just hates you at that point if you're trying to do something kind of structured this way. Sealed classes have all that nice property of enums of being, you know, a particular, you know, a well-known set of related objects, but some of them can actually carry uh, parameters along with them. You can instantiate different variants of them, but still have these nice little um, uh, with statements in Kotlin instead of switch statements in Java that will force you to address all of these objects and handle them all together and um, so you, 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 you know, you build your, you define those, those as your states and those as your events and, and a couple of kind of standard ways to, uh, write a transition function and, uh, you've got something really expressive there. So our, our workflows under the hood tend to be either, um, a state machine built in the style that Andy has laid out, um, or, um, subscriptions to a bunch of observable objects and, uh, one central Rx observable combined latest method uh, that stitches those together with the user's input and derives the uh, you know, the screen information to show out of that. That makes sense. Or And another version I've seen some folks do is like using like the observable, the scan observable, right? And if it's something yeah, yeah, that yeah. they can build on top of, right? Yeah, there's like a, just a you know, handful of them, uh, switch map we, we run into all of the time uh, like there. So I guess, yeah, I guess in terms of resources, find Andy's gist and... Um, Get the O'Reilly Reactive, um, O'Reilly RX book that just came out, <laughs> um, and uh, and the uh, the Kotlin book that just hit the shelves too. Um, I, God, what's the name for that? Is this I'm, the, I'm, the JetBrains one? Like Co- Kotlin, Kotlin, yeah, action. Kotlin in action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. got it. Yeah, yeah. Um, with those three things, I think um, a lot of us are going to have a much better ten years than the last ten years have been. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good time to be an Android engineer, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ray, thank you so much. It's 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 been a pleasure to like talk to you about this pattern. Your talk is a fantastic talk. We'll make sure to add a link there. It's nice to even like uh, know some of like the stories, especially because 
uh, like Don was mentioning, Square is such a reputed company, and to yeah. us folks who are outside, we think like everything is fine and perfect uh, back there. So it is, it is nice to see that like yeah, these problems plague every company, even though you have like some of the smartest engineers, right? So <laughs> it's a, it, it's a it's a badge of honor, you know. If you have these problems, it's it's because whatever you're doing worked well enough that you did it too much, and <laughs> you've got to find the next thing to do. Perfect. If folks want to reach out to you, uh, you know, maybe ask more questions, follow up questions, or uh, something around, uh, or like any other questions uh, related to your talk, what's the best way to do that? Um, probably reach me on Twitter, uh, where I'm RJRJR, which stands for Raymond J. Ryan Jr. Uh, Don, if folks want to find out what you've been up to recently, what's a good way to do that? The best way to get a hold of me is going to be on Twitter, and that's at Don Felker. And finally, Kaushik, save the best for last. How do folks get a hold of you and see what's going on with you? Uh, I am Kaushik Gopal on Twitter. So if, yeah, if folks have questions, feel free to shoot it this way. Thank you all so much for listening. Again, uh, Ray, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was fun. We will catch you in the next episode. Before we dip out of here, I want to say thank you to this episode's sponsor, and that's Rollbar. Rollbar allows you to monitor your errors, get the context you need, and allows you to fix the bugs faster that you encounter with a lot less noise, which is kind of a big thing. No one really likes a bunch of noise you have to sift through to fix problems. It's super easy to set up, takes a few minutes, and integrates with all different types of frameworks such as Ruby, Python, JavaScript, PHP, Node, iOS, and of course, Android. Integrates with existing tools such as Slack, HipChat, whatever you might use, GitHub, Bitbucket, Jira, Pivotal Tracker, Trello, the list could go on and on and on. The cool thing is, it just kind of works and it's awesome. You really got to give it a shot and see how you feel about it. But uh, as soon as I used it, I loved it. We got a special offer for the folks here on the show. Go to rollbar.com slash fragmented and sign up. Again, that's rollbar.com slash fragmented. Thanks again, Rollbar. That's it for the show, folks. Fragmented is hosted by Don Felker and me, Kaushik Gopal. We edit and produce all the episodes here on Fragmented. Sarah the Amazing Jackson from the Spec Network helps with production assistance and wraps our final mix. Our theme and ad music is by the national recording artist Blueprint from Weightless Recordings. You can find more Fragmented episodes at fragmentedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.